So, Father, I pray as we start this new study in this Gospel of Luke and walking with the Son of Man, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our minds to understand what it is that you are speaking to us. Lord, I pray that you would focus our mind, take away all distraction, that you would just keep us focused on the task in hand, on the reason that we live on this planet, on the reason that we are here now in 2019. Help us to see that, Lord. Help us to join the dots and make the connections so that we can live for your glory, Lord, so that we can be single-minded in our, in our joint venture as an assembly of God, as a church in this place, that we can single-mindedly with one aim fulfill the purpose you have for our life. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you so much for what we will learn through Luke. I thank you that he wrote it. I thank you that you inspired him to write this down. And I praise you, Lord, because you asked him to write it to me and to every person in this room. So, Father, for what we will hear now and what we'll go on to look at and study in these coming 12 weeks, Lord, may you be honoured by the result of our study. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So... Luke, the Gospel of Luke, I don't know how much reading you've done of it, the, um, all those scriptures in uh, the homework from session one, which said before session one, I had, there was a long list of scriptures, they are all unique to Luke, so you won't find them in any other gospel, which is quite surprising when you think that Luke is one of the synoptic gospels, so you'd think that you would find these uh, things talked about, but Luke writes things in his gospel that you won't find anywhere else, and... Um, so in that way, it's a really good gospel for us to study. Who, who is Luke? Who, who was he? Doctor. He was a physician, yeah, yeah. He was Greek, yeah, he joined Paul. He went with Paul on his missionary journeys after the second one. Uh, he was a Greek, a Gentile, and he is unique in the Bible. He is the only Gentile author of any book in Scripture. So there is no other Gentile writer in scripture. So he is unique. He accompanied Paul on several journeys. He probably met Paul in Antioch because Acts chapter 16 talks about the second missionary uh, journey of Paul and they they went out from Antioch, as you know. So he was probably uh, a Gentile who lived in Antioch, met Paul there, was probably converted by him and then went with him on his missionary journeys. Why do you think God chose Luke to, through whom to write this gospel? Well, one of the reasons could have been because he liked to put things in order. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> he was a doctor yeah. by trade. Yeah, could have been that. But he could look out for the Gentile point. Yeah, because Luke would write with the Gentiles in mind. He was a Gentile. His thinking was Greek. His thinking was not Hebrew. He thought in the Greek way, and so he wrote his gospel in that way. And he would write to people who did not know God through the Jewish religion. It's so amazing to me that God would choose this man to write this gospel because he knew at a time when there were almost no Gentile believers... The, Jewish, uh, the membership of the church was predominantly Jewish at this time. But he, he uh, causes this man, this doctor, to write this down so that 
Uh, because, because of course, God knew that the gospel was going to be out now into the Gentile world. And, and, and Luke was the man he chose to do it. Um, why do you think God did that? Why would he choose a Gentile? So that the Gentiles would have ears to hear. Yeah, so that the Gentiles would have ears to hear. Think about, um, I mean, why couldn't he choose a Jew to write another gospel? Matthew, Mark, John. He sees things from a Gentile point of view. But what do you think God's trying to tell us? Because, yes, that's true. Yes, Luke is the gospel for everybody. It's the gospel for the world. It's not the gospel like Matthew was the gospel about the kingdom of God coming into being, actually the physical kingdom of God that was offered to Israel when Jesus was on the planet. Luke is the gospel to every person. It's the gospel to the, to the slave girl and the nobleman. It's the gospel to the Caesar and the villager. It's the gospel to every single person. What does that tell you about God? He cares about everybody. He cares about everybody. He is no respecter of persons. He calls everyone. He uses everyone. He empowers and enables everyone. Because God is the God who wants to reach everyone. And each one of us, this is what I mean about this ministry, each one of us will reach a person that the other people won't reach. Each one of us has a unique personality and a unique um, contact with people, connection, and God will use it to spread his word. What do you think he might be doing in the last of the last days, in the last hours of the last days? What do you think he might be doing? He might be trying to tell you, whoever you are and wherever you come from and whatever you've done and how no matter what you know and what you don't know, you are a person I will use to extend my kingdom. And why do you think he's calling to us now? Because it's urgent. Because it's urgent and time is short. So whatever you thought about yourself, whatever you think about yourself, whether you think you should or you shouldn't or you can or you can't, you can wipe all of that out in this gospel because this gospel will name people who shouldn't have been able to do anything and who are used by God. It will literally tell you about people who were nobodies, who became somebody because the somebody took control. I can't, I'm so overwhelmed by this gospel. It kind of, it took me completely by surprise. I've read Luke many times, but the study of it took me completely by surprise when I realized that God wrote this gospel to me. To me. A Gentile. I don't know. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? That's what I mean. I'd love to be able to say, well, I just, I had this, this, just this understanding in my soul. No, I didn't. I thought, I, I don't actually know why. I just thought, actually, Eve had said it would be good to do a gospel. And I thought, yeah. Are you? And I thought, yeah, that is, that'd be quite good. Let's do Luke. So, God is no respecter of persons. He uses whomever he wants, whenever he wants. And Luke had two main purposes for writing this gospel. One which he states openly and the other which you can take from the way he writes it. So what is his purpose? He states his main, one of the main purposes in the first couple of yes. verses. 
Yeah, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to probably 1, one to 3. Yes, he is. Yes, very thorough. Uh, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me, Luke, as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And this shows us that he was not an eyewitness. Yeah. He learnt it from people who were. Yes, he wasn't an eyewitness. Think about what he says, that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So what things, who, what, what things were Theo, was Theophilus taught? Because he's been taught things. So what's he been taught? Roughly, I mean, generally, what's he been taught about the gospel, about Jesus? Yeah, he's been taught the, 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 the gospel message in, in general. And what Luke says is, I want you to know the exact truth of what you've been taught. So what does he want Theophilus to know? That it's real. That this is fact. This isn't a story. This isn't a myth. This isn't a legend. This isn't some, some kind of religious... Uh, writing that he would have been used to, Theophilus, from all the pagan gods that they were, that they used to worship. This is real. This is truth. This is fact. And I wrote it down in consecutive order so that you could follow the trail of these facts. I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing. John will start his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And, and he's writing to an audience that will understand that because they're Jews and they'll understand the Old Testament and they'll have that kind of understanding. But Luke is writing to a man who has no knowledge of God whatsoever. So think about that. Think about the fact that Luke is the gospel to the Gentiles and in his day the Gentiles had no, none or very little knowledge of the God who created the world the God who formed Israel, the God who would be the saviour of mankind. They had no knowledge of that. So what would be important for Luke to include in his gospel, in his book? Times and dates. Times and dates, yeah. And, and when he's writing, since he's writing to Gentiles, what dates and what times will he put in his, in his gospel? Roman ones. Roman ones. How many times does, Duke, uh, does Luke say, in the days of Caesar Augustus, yes. in the days of ta- whatever? Luke chapter 2, I think, he starts off one chapter. Um, here we are. Now, in, the days, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, mm-hmm. when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Luke is writing to Gentiles, so he's putting their, these events in their time frame. I just, I'm blown away by the detail of this. Yeah. You know, mm. Luke 
frequently explains Jewish localities. Look at chapter 4, Luke 4, verse 31. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. If Luke were writing to Jews, he wouldn't have to tell them where Capernaum was. They'd know. But over and over again, Luke, uh, for Luke 8, 26, same thing. Luke 8, 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. You don't have to say that to, the, to a Jew. He would know. Chapter 21, 37. Chapter 23, 51. Chapter 24, 13. There are so many times when he describes a location because the readers won't know where it is. Yes, of course yeah. we do. So we do, isn't it? Isn't it interesting? But to think about that, you know, think about if he's writing to Gentiles and if he's presenting Jesus as the saviour of the world, not just the saviour of the Jews, then he has to write it in the frame of reference they can understand. He has to write it with the timeline they can understand. He has to describe the places that Jesus went to. And then think about his genealogy of Christ. Where does it go back to? The beginning. Yeah, which is? Um, no, think about his genealogy of Jesus. Yeah. Where does that go back to? Adam. Where does Matthew's genealogy start? Abraham. Why does Matthew start with Abraham? Because Abraham is the father of the Jews. He is the father of Israel. Why does Luke take it back to Adam? Because Jesus is the saviour of mankind, yes. of the whole world. And so in chapter 3, um, verses 23 through 28, when you read the genealogy of Christ in Luke's gospel, it takes you all the way back mm. to Adam. This is the second Adam. This is the God-man. This is the man who will live the life Adam couldn't live and pay the price that Adam should have paid. This is that man. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. <laughs> it's wonderful. Luke uses words in his gospel. Sorry, go ahead, Michelle. No, I, just, I know I'm a bit... No, no don't say it. it. No, but um, who's most excellent? Theophilus. I, well, nobody really knows who he is. He's obviously important. Is it a person or is it a oh, no, it's a person. It's a person. Theophilus, the name means lover of God, I think, or follower of God. Yeah, it's a, it means something like that. So he obviously was a Gentile believer, um, and Luke's writing to him to kind of pad out his understanding of who Jesus is. Um, but he must have been important for Luke to have written the whole book to him. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah. So... Um, he uses a lot of words that are not Hebrew words. So he, he uses, um, for example, he uses the word didascalus, which means teacher, instead of the word rabbi. Um, yeah, where is that? I, I haven't put a reference on it. I can find it for you, Anne, but he uses it several times. You'll come across it. If you look up the Greek words for these things, D-I-D, A-S-K... A-L-O-S. It, it means teacher. So as rabbi meant teacher, he uses the word didascalus. He uses the Septuagint 
for his translation of Old Testament scriptures. So he, he uses the Greek translation of the Old Testament to quote from the Old Testament, whereas all the other gospel writers use the Hebrew, the original language, to quote from the Old Testament. Um, he says very little about Jesus fulfilling prophecies. Why do you think that is? Because it doesn't mean much to the Gentile. To the Jews, it was important that this man fulfilled the prophecies. But to the Gentiles, they don't even know what the prophecies are. So he doesn't write very much about them. Um, he, he's, he writes in language very similar to Paul's, and he uses words very similar to Paul uses. He uses the word faith and grace and mercy those words a lot. In fact, um, I've got the word grace. I looked this up. I didn't find this myself. The word grace is, is found 146 times in the New Testament. All but 21 are found in Paul and Luke's writing. So if you want to know about grace, read Paul's letters or Luke's gospel. 190 of the 243 occurrences of faith are found in the writings of Paul. End of Luke. You want to know what faith is? Read Paul's letters or Luke's gospel. Um, tradition tells us he was a, a physician, as I say, came from Antioch. The first Gentile church was established there. Barnabas and Saul were elders there. Paul, later Paul, Saul. Um, and as we said, he went out with Paul on, on his missionary journeys. You know that from the book of Acts because he talks about in Acts 16, for example, verse 10, he says, and we set sail to this place when he's talking about Paul. So, um, yeah, so he, had, he learned his theology from Paul. Obviously from God, but, but, but from Paul. So people say that Mark is the scribe of Peter. Mark learned his uh, theology from Peter. Well, if, if that's the case, then uh, Luke learned his from Paul. It's interesting, don't you think? Mm -hmm. I hope you're interested because I yeah. love this stuff. Yeah, I, I love really the way love God this. connects this yeah. and, and makes it real. You know, this is a real person writing a real account yes. of a real God who took on flesh mm -hmm. and who walked among us. Go ahead, yeah. Mike. He wrote uh, uh, before Matthew and Mark. Yes. As far as we know. Uh, yeah, it's difficult to be sure yes. of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know one thing, and that is, of course, that um, uh, Acts was written before Paul's death. Yes, and definitely. Yes, exactly. And this was written before that. Before that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we're talking about a time before the destruction of Jerusalem yeah. and before yeah. the scattering of the Jews. So that's what I mean when there are very few Gentile believers at this time. So you could look at this and say, why on earth are you writing this book? You know, because God knows that there's going to be the Gentiles included in. So... Um, yeah, he says very little, as I say, about fulfilling prophecy. Luke's uh, parables focus on individuals as opposed to the kingdom parables of Matthew. He, um, he uh, speaks of repentance, of mercy, of forgiveness very often. And he, he absolutely emphasizes the salvation that is available to every single person who ever lives. Um, much of the material in Luke's Gospels found only in his Gospel. So, uh, I, you know, there's no parallel in Matthew, Mark or John. 
His, he is the only one who writes about the Good Samaritan. Think about this. The parable of the Good Samaritan, he's the only one who writes that. The rich fool, he's the only one. The lost coin, the prodigal son, the rich man and Lazarus. And there are many, many other parables that you only find in Luke. So just think about the Good Samaritan. What is the parable of the Good Samaritan about? We'll study it as we go through the but what's it about? Who are the people that walk past the man? Who is the person? But who's the person who helps him? Yes. The Samaritan, who is not Jew, but not quite Gentile, as you say, half and half. But it's not the Jew. It's the other person, the outcast, the one who's not part of my religion. He's the one who is told in that to... Um, what is the, the, the story of the lost coin? The parable of the lost coin... What what happens in that parable? Do you remember? There's one short. She's lost one coin. And what does she do? She sweeps the whole house until she finds it. What does God want you to know through Luke about the lost coin? That there is nothing too small for Jesus to come for. There's no one that will be lost. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um... Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. What else is special in Luke's gospel? I'm telling you this stuff because there's quite a bit to go through, and I'm, I'm sure you will have seen lots of it. I'm not saying that you haven't seen it. I'm just. This is what um, you know. I've seen over half this gospel contain the words. Over half the verses contain the words of Jesus. Over half the verses in this, the longest book in the New Testament, contain the words of Jesus. Why is that, do you think? Yes, because it's all about Jesus. And it's all about what he said. And it's all about what he did. Um, forgiveness and an individual response to Christ are the emphasis in this. Um, and there's, I mean, there's several special themes. You could pick out lots of them, and we will as we go through. But the one we're going to start with tonight is kind of an extension of what we've been doing for the last little while, and that's prayer. One of the main emphasis of Luke is prayer. He describes in great detail the fact that Jesus prayed constantly. And, and when you think about it, Luke presents to us the Son of Man. Matthew presents to us the king of Israel. Mark, the servant, the suffering servant, and John, the word of God, the son of God. But Luke describes the son of man, the man and the woman that we should be, the humans that we should be. And he does that in, in, in so many different ways, but the, one of the primary ways is that he shows us that without prayer, you cannot have an effective relationship with God the Father. Jesus prayed all the time. Why did Jesus pray all the time? Because without his Father, he could do nothing. And he says, I only do what I see the Father do. I only speak what I hear the Father speak. You know, if I don't, without him, I can do nothing. But think about all of that. Think about all of that. Think about who he is. Who is Jesus? He's God the Son. Why does he pray to God the Father? 
because he loves him and he's in relationship with him. So yeah, he doesn't know what to do. He's not going to do anything on his own initiative. He's already made that decision. He's, he's only going to say what he hears the father saying. He's only going to do what he sees the father doing. But don't you think he's seen and heard enough already? <laughs> what is he modeling for us? He's modeling as the son of man what we as humans are supposed to be living. We're supposed to be living in close personal relationship with God. And the way he describes that is a life of prayer. A life of prayer. So I looked up a lot of different words. Um, I looked up several Hebrew words for prayer from the Old Testament and then some of the New Testament words. Um, I'm going to tell you them. We won't spend too much time on them, but just there's a few Hebrew words which mean pray. We translate them pray, but um, palal, P-A-L-A-L, and it, it's, it, it's translated pray, but it emphasizes our dependence and humility uh, in praying. So it's an appeal for God to act on my behalf because I'm dependent on him. Care, yeah, exactly, palliative care. Atar, A-T-A-R. That emphasizes the intensity of my prayers, how much I know that I need him and how much I want him to do certain things. Sal, which is S-A apostrophe A-L. It means to inquire of God. How many times do you read in, in, uh, when you're reading about David in Samuel and, and Kings, do you read about David inquired of the Lord? It's, it's written so many times, David inquired of the Lord. Mm. Why did he inquire of the Lord? Because he didn't want to take a step without asking God, is this the way to go? It's that idea, this asking for guidance and, and, and which way to go. Paga, P-A-G-A, intercessory prayer, asking God to help another person. And um, the last one that I wrote, there are more, but Hanan, H-A-N-A-N, it's a cry to God for mercy, asking him to act in grace and meet and need. Each of those terms, every word for prayer in the Old Testament reinforces something. Now I want think about the Old Testament think about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the history of Israel. It's it's the story of God, the whole wonderful whole story of God from creation to to uh, Malachi, the last prophet before Christ. But it's well not technically because John the Baptist was but um, but it's the, it's the history of the nation of Israel. And we can get caught up in that to think they had a list of rules and regulations, they had temple worship, they had priests who would do certain things and could only be, they would be the only ones who could do those things. They had specific days to do them and weeks to do them and times of the year to do them. You could easily think that prayer was just a ritual part of their religion. And in a way, it was. But these words, these Hebrew words, open up the door to that because they show you these are personal terms. These are words that you use for speaking to a personal God. So these are not words that are like from me to a kind of a deity who's out there that I don't know much about. These are words like these are the words I use when I'm I'm going to a God that I know. So the Jews prayed in their ritual religion, but they could go to God at any time. 
And the reason they could go to God at any time was because he was their father. They didn't always understand that. They didn't always obey him, but they could go to him at any time. We miss that sometimes in the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law and the, and the judgments for them not obeying. We miss this individual response that's going on in the Old Testament. And we think that starts with Jesus, but it doesn't. God is the same God. He was the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. He, he, he's calling his people all the time to speak to him. David constantly, as I say, all through those books you hear God. David inquired of God. David inquired of God. David asked the Lord. David heard the Lord. David did this. David did that. He constantly, him, David, as a type of Christ, the Christ who would come, him showing us the way to deal with God. Um, I had an example of um, a, a, a person in the, New, in the Old Testament, uh, Hagar. Uh, we won't look at it. Genesis 16. You know the story of Hagar. Mm -hmm. She has a child by Abraham. But she, before... Um, uh, she, she runs off before she actually has the child. She runs away from Sarah because Sarah's mistreating her. And she gets to the wilderness place. And she has obviously cried out to whoever she thinks God is because the angel of the Lord meets her there. And she calls God El Roy, the God who sees. The God who sees. And, and not just sees, but cares about what he sees. And so you have this conversation with the angel of the Lord and this woman. She's a Gentile, a Gentile. She's cried probably to a God she only knows through Abraham. But she's made this cry because she's in a place of desperation and God has answered her prayer. That from the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis on, we're talking about a God who sees and cares and wants us to cry out to him. The Old Testament confirms it. The New mm -hmm. Testament takes it on. The New Testament, I've got three different words for prayer. Um, if you want the words in Greek, come to me afterwards because I can't pronounce them. But um, The first one is a general term for prayer. and it, It's kind of the warmth of a conversation that you might have with someone you know well. And it's that idea of conversation. Um, the second one is to ask for something or request something specific. Um, and the third one that I've got means to beseech, to beg someone to do something. But they're all familial terms. They're, they're the sort of words you use when you know the person you're coming to, mm. where you know who he is and what he's promised. And so you come to him with these terms and you ask him for what you need in, in general terms. Um, in all of the, the, the Bible, the prayer, the, the words that you use for prayer emphasize this personal relationship. And Luke, of all the gospel writers, talks about the personal relationship of Jesus with his father and of him modeling that for us. Every word in the Bible has untold meaning. Every word is full of, of something that God wants us to know about him. And in the words he's used for prayer, he's telling us, this is the way into this personal relationship with me and this is the way you maintain and sustain this personal relationship with me. And that's interesting <coughs> and important because Luke will be the one that writes those parables, it records those parables 
of where Jesus is showing us examples of the opposites to God. Do you remember well, the one we did in the uh, prayer through the door of faith study? We did Luke 18, where the woman comes to the unrighteous judge and she's going around outside. And we talked about the contrast that, that Luke showed. He does that all the time in his gospel. He's showing the contrasts between God and the human. So God is the righteous judge of all mankind and the human unrighteous judge. He's going to talk, we'll look at it in a minute, he's going to talk about the, the friend at midnight. You go, you've had some people arrive and you go to, you've got no bread and you go to your friend at midnight, you bang on the door and you have to keep banging and keep banging and keep banging and then he opens it up and gives you some bread because you've got on his nerves so much. Mm-hmm. And Jesus will use these stories to say, God is, your God is not like this. He's completely the opposite of that. Because Luke wants to do what? What does he want us to understand? About, remember, he's writing a gospel to Gentiles. He's writing to people who know nothing about God, this God. He's writing to people who don't have the history of the Old Testament, who don't have the prophecies, who don't have that religious base that they that the Jews had. He's writing to complete people who completely know nothing about God. And he wants to tell them something about this God. What is it? It's very different to others. Yeah, very different to other gods. He loves them. They don't they've never heard of a God who loves them. They they can't even conceive of a God who might love them. They have gods they have to appease. They have gods who are, are at war with each other. They have, they have Greek gods and Roman gods and all these other gods that, that actually have no personal relationship with them. And here is Luke presenting this God, this God who loved you so much that he took on flesh, that he walked this planet showing you the life that you could live through him. It's completely Completely opposite. And I was thinking about it. You know, I was thinking, I was thinking, okay, Lord, why are we, why am I, stu- why are we studying Luke now? And then one of the things that I realised was, 2019 in this country, we have millions of people who know nothing about God. They know nothing about the God of the Bible. They didn't learn about him in school. They didn't. They haven't sung songs about him. They don't. They don't even songs of praise doesn't talk about our God. They have no way of knowing this God except through us. And we must present this God as the God who cares and sees and loves and is gracious and full of mercy and who longs for people to come into this personal relationship with him. And we can't just talk about that. We have to model that. We have to know this God. John will say it, won't he? Jesus says it in his, in his gospel, uh, in the gospel of John, John 17. This is eternal life, that you might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that word know means experience, that they might experience you, the one true God. How do you experience life with God? You pray, you talk to him and he talks to you. So, um, yeah, so I think uh, a couple of things I wanted to say. Um, we are always shorter in the evening of time than we are in the morning, so 
takes me, I have to be a bit quicker through my notes, but um, we're often, we often think with prayer, I think, and, and maybe we're even taught it, that uh, prayer is a kind of, um, it's a, a bit of an obstacle course. We've got to do certain things and say certain things and jump through certain hoops in order to be heard by God. We have to keep on keeping on praying. You know, we have to be persistent. We have to uh, remind you that this is the medicine reminder for, um, yeah. So we have to be persistent. We have to keep on. And we have to come to him in the right way and say the right words and, and make sure we ask for the right things. And prayer is presented as almost a task something really hard to do and because it is it becomes something we don't naturally want to do and yet Jesus modeled for us an, an, a relationship with the father that is like breathing it's exactly like breathing it's just like I know my father and I know he knows me and I'm just coming to him with everything in my heart and my mind because I know he is the God of the impossible. That the Father who loves me and cares for me and surrounds me by his grace is also the God who can move mountains, who parted the sea. It's, and, and that understanding, that understanding is crucial for us now in 2019 because we are going to face opposition we are going to face obstacles that are too hard for us they're too hard the mountains are too high to climb the giants are too big to fight they're just too much for us and we unfortunately live in a church that tells us we can do that we can move the mountain we can fight the giants we can be like David, dare to be a Daniel, stand up to Goliath. We can do those things, and that's nonsense. We can't. We are, that is nonsense. We cannot kill Goliath. Only Christ can kill Goliath. That's what David shows us. We can't stand like Daniel stood. Only Christ can stand like Daniel stood. We, we can't do these things separate from Christ. And we find him as we pray to God the Father and as he fills us and moves us by his Holy Spirit. And if ever the world needs to see that, they need to see it now. I don't know, if, are you on Facebook? Some of you are on Facebook. How many times do you read on Facebook, there's power in prayer, there's power in prayer. Well, there's no power in prayer, none. There is no power in prayer. There is power in the God we pray to. Yes, that's the there is no power in your prayers. You could say the most eloquent prayer. You could be the most powerful prayer. Powerful, wrong word. The most strong prayer. You could do this. You could say this. You could be this. And nothing could happen. Because it matters who you're praying to. It matters that you're asking him to do this on your behalf. It matters who you're praying to. It's the same as faith. How many times do you see my faith? My faith got me through. No, your faith can't get you through anything. Mm. It's, it's who you have faith in. Jesus got you through. God got you through. Your faith was the channel by which, through which he did it. But he got you through. Your prayers mean nothing except that you prayed them to a God who is powerful. And he did it. And we need to be talking about that in our generation. Because people are out there and they are dying 
of fear and anxiety and depression. They, they don't know what... I mean, who could make... What, who understands what is going on, even in our country, in our government? Who can understand that? Apart from God, I mean. How can you understand it apart from God? Imagine, what, what, what are they making of it? And what are we doing? What are we doing We're to... We're listening yeah. and believing what we hear. Yes. It's quite different. Exactly. What but what are you doing out there? Mm. What are you doing out there with the people who are totally confused? Mm. How are you talking to them? How are you talking as, let's say you're a, a leaver, how are you talking as a leave voter to a remaining public? Yes, what are you saying to them? Are you saying, well, you know, I'm just praying all the time for leave. I just want out because I, I know God and I want out. As a Remain voter, what are you saying to leavers? Well, we've got to, you know, we've got to stay because this is our security. This is, you know, this is what we need. We need to be in the European Union. We have to get our eyes off this that's happening and up there and see the opportunity God is giving us to witness to Jesus out into our world, at our time, in our day. Yes, we pray. I mean, I pray for Brexit, of course. I want out of the European Union. I believe it to be the... Uh, uh, the beast that John uh, yeah. that John writes about in Revelation, but but you know what? It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter. I, God has given me this opportunity in 2019 to speak into the fear and the confusion and the chaos with the name of Jesus and to tell them, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know the God who holds everything in His hand. I don't know where we're going. What's going to happen to us as a nation? Will we be on our own? Will we be with you? I don't know. I just know he is God and his plans and his purposes are being worked out even as we sit in our chaos and confusion. They don't need to know what you believe about Brexit. They need to know what you believe about God. Now, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's not important to pray for them. It's important to pray for issues. Of course it is. It was because people in government prayed for anti to stop slavery that slavery stopped. It's important to pray for social issues and to make a difference and to, to put yourself out there. But the reason to do it is so that people see Jesus in you. So they see the Son of Man. The the, the God who who came with justice and righteousness and mercy. The God who saw everybody and didn't bypass anyone. The God who promises joy and peace and and all of that blessing. So, um, why is it important to pray? Because God is a powerful God. Why is it important to pray that God will lead you and direct you? Because he knows where he wants you, and you don't. Mm. It may not seem obvious. Exactly. Mm. Or it may be very obvious to you and completely the wrong place <laughs> to God. <laughs> you know, why is it important to pray and to read the word? I'm not discounting the word, by the way. I'm just, this is about prayer, not about the word, but the two go together. So yes, it's important. It's important. It's important when, when we stand and talk to someone that we don't just give them our opinion about something, but we base it on the word of God. That I can say to you, I know that God wants to hear you pray at any time because I, he has told me that I can come boldly to the throne of grace in my time of need. Mm. I know that God wants to hear my voice because he has told me to pray unceasingly. 
you know, when I'm talking to other people, if I'm not giving them the truth about God, this is what Luke wrote to Theophilus, the truth about God. This is the truth about Jesus, written in consecutive order, so that you don't go away and in 10 years' time think, what did I believe? What was that all about? So that you know your faith rests on historical fact about a real person who really lived and who really died and who was God in the flesh. I want to just look at a few, um, uh, a few of the parables that Luke talks about um, uh, or tells them about prayer. Um, yeah, and, and I think, I don't want to miss this before I get to that, that the thing about prayer is... Um, you know, we don't know what God thinks until we pray and hear him tell us. I mean, we know some basic things, but we don't know exactly what he wants us to do or where he wants us to do it or where he wants us to go. We think we know, and we might be right, but until he actually confirms it to us, we don't know. How does God confirm to us that what we're doing is right, that where we want to go is right, that, that what we're praying for is what he wants? How does he confirm that to us? by his Holy Spirit, who gives us confirmation within us, gives us the assurance that we are doing what he wants us to do, that we are going in the right direction. So by the Holy Spirit, who will do what? Lead us into all truth. Eve's got all the answers written down. <laughs> no, I know, I know. I'm just joking. Um, so he's going to leave, lead us into all truth. What, where is all truth? It's here. So if, if God is going to lead you to do something, he is almost certainly going to confirm it in some way through his word to you. The word and prayer, the Holy Spirit is the word, the Spirit, the spirit is the word, is the spirit of truth. So there's, there's no separation. People say to me, they, they've got the word over there or they've got the spirit over there. And I say, well, you can't have the word without the spirit. Mm -hmm. It says, doesn't it, the spirit and the word. Agree. Yeah. Yes. You can't. If you have the word and not the spirit... I'm sorry, you're seriously lacking and you may not even be a Christian. If you've got the spirit and not the word, I'm sorry. You might be getting a lot of feelings, but they're not necessarily good. Yeah. So the two go together. Um, Paul says, doesn't he, in Ephesians 5, he says, do not, be, um, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. And Jude says, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. Now, most of the time, if I ask you, what does praying in the Spirit mean? People will say it means praying in tongues. It can't mean praying in tongues. Why not? Because not everyone gets the gift of tongues. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that. So if it means praying in tongues, it will say, oh, I'm stuck then. I can't do the building up. <laughs> I can't pray. It's the so, wrong way around, So praying in the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, what do they mean? What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? In his will. Yeah, in his will. And Just being conscious. Yes, being conscious of him all the time. Even if not actually outwardly praying. Yes, yes. 
praying, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. So it's this understanding that, um, A, the Spirit is the one to lead me into my prayers. He's the one to give me what to pray. Only he knows the mind of God, Paul says. The Spirit knows the mind of God and reveals that to us. So as I, as I come into prayer, I believe that I have the Holy Spirit, that he will lead me into prayer and that as I pray, I want to make sure I'm praying according to the will and to the word of God. And the Holy Spirit will open that up to me. So what will it mean if I'm praying in the Spirit um, um, and I'm praying according to the, the will of God and what I've seen written down? What will happen if I pray by the Spirit, in the Spirit, praying what God has already laid down for me in the word? What, will, what does that mean? That's a kind of a weird way around. He will answer that prayer. Why? Because he's promised to do so. So, But in order to pray God's will, according to his character, by the Spirit, I have to know my God. I have to know who he is and know what he wants and know where he wants me to be. I have to understand that his purpose is not necessarily my purpose. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, but very often when I'm praying, I say, okay, God, this is the plan. <laughs> this is the plan. This is what I know is the best thing to do. This is the best thing to do. So I'm just going to go and do it. Would you bless it, please? Would you make it okay? That's completely upside down. You know it's upside down. Yeah. So, exactly. So I have to come before God and say to him, I don't care where you take me or what you do with me. I just want you to take me and use me for your glory. God will always answer that prayer. He will always answer that prayer. That is surrender, isn't it? It is. It is. Mm -hmm. Everything I have and everything I am is yours. Use it for your glory. So let's look at a couple of the... Um, of the uh, uh, parables that Jesus used, a couple of things he said about prayer. Luke 6, 27 to 36. Could someone read those verses, please? Luke 6, 27 to 36. But I say to you who hear, is that right? Mm. Yes. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Mm. Pray to those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the, on the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? But even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? But even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind, is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Mm -hmm. 
from when verse 36 on him. Thank you. Okay. It, yeah, think about this though, because this, just think about what Jesus is saying. Not exactly the words, but think about as they heard this, what's he actually getting them to do? He's the opposite, the opposite of, of A, the law, and B, the opposite of human instinct. We don't love those who hate us. We hate those who hate us. We don't do good to our enemies because we're afraid if we do good to them, they'll come back and bite us. So we want to do them down. So Jesus is saying, I want you to do the opposite of your human instinct. The opposite of your human fleshly instinct. And then he's saying... um, He's saying, I want you to love them. And then he says, do good to those who hate you. What is it? He says, look, I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So he connects love with doing good. So for Jesus, love is shown by an action. Love is not a feeling, it's an action. So when he says, love your enemies, you could say, well, I'm doing my best to love them, Lord. It's hard, but I really am trying. And his answer is, do good to them, and it will come easier. Do good to those who hate you. So it's a radical departure from every human instinct. He's showing them that love has action. It's got feet and hands. It does things. And then the third thing, in order to, to, because you can do good to people, And it doesn't come from your heart of love. So how are you going to get a heart of love? Pray. You are going to pray. Because when you pray for people, that is an act of love. And God will bring about love in your heart as you pray for those who hate you and who are your enemies. Yes. So, um, I, I mean, just think about that. What does prayer do for you? It enables you to love and to do for your enemies and those who hate you. Imagine you're a believer and you don't pray very much. What's going to be happening? If you don't pray much, you won't love much. And you definitely won't do much. Exactly. You'll get harder and harder and harder and you'll become more and more unable to do the thing that Christ is calling you to do. And you'll justify it with all sorts of things. Because that's what we do as humans. We justify our actions. We wrap them up in nice paper and, and so that they look nice because on the inside they're pretty horrible. Jesus is saying, pray, 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 pray and you will be able to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. You'll be able to bless them. Okay, look at another one, Luke 10. Luke 10, verses 1 to 3. This is a different thing, but something that Jesus is trying to encourage people to pray. He wants us to pray so that we can love our enemies and do good to them. Now look at... Luke 10, verses 1 to 3. Someone read, you, read those verses, please. Luke 10, 1 to 3. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. 
Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Okay, thank you. So, what's Jesus telling them to be aware of? I mean, he says, um, the harvest is plentiful. What does he mean by that? There's plenty of people that are ready to and need to hear the gospel. There's plenty of them. So I'm sending you out. And, um, and then he says, so pray that God will find workers to go out, right? When you pray for God to find a worker, what's going to happen? It might be you. It's going to be you. It's going to be you. It's going to be you. Jesus... Sorry to mm, no, go. When we pray for each other, because it's like Jill walked into the church, I know she prayed mm. because I was on church watch, because I had far more opportunities to speak. Yeah, to there you go. That's it. It's terribly important for yes. us to pray for each, each other. other. Yes. yes. The thing is, yes. what Jesus is saying here is, um, pray that God will send out workers. Now, in order to pray that God will send out workers, you have to know there's a harvest out there. And you have to know that people are ready to hear the gospel and that they need the gospel. How will you know that? Because God will make that evident to you. He will make that evident to you. Jesus has made it evident to them. I'm sending you out, he says. There's a, the harvest is plentiful. Pray that God will send workers. And when you pray, God will say, you've seen the need. You know they're ready. What about you? And he'll send you. So what is Jesus trying to teach them about prayer? It's dangerous. <laughs> it's dangerous. It produces results, yeah. But the thing about prayer is a general thing. But I mean, think about it because you only know that there's a need for the gospel because you've prayed. You only know that God will make people ready to hear the gospel because you've prayed. And you'll only be sent, on, or when you ask him, Lord, send out workers, he's going to say, I've shown you the need, and I've shown you they're ready. Now, go. So I would, I would say, and I think I'm right, if you see the need, and you see the readiness of people for the truth of God, you're the one he wants to send. If he's made that evident to you, don't look around like, well, who should go, Lord? It can't be me. If he's shown you, it's you. Exactly. Exactly. It says that he sent the 70 out for him. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Already been there. Yeah. And he's sending them out to the pleasure of enjoying the ministry which he is already creating for. Yeah, exactly. 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 There you go. That's exactly it. Isn't that That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think too, Anne. The fact is, everybody that comes across your path is someone that needs the gospel. There's no one that doesn't need the gospel, doesn't need to know about Jesus. So actually, in some ways, I understand what you're saying, but in some ways, it's like, okay, uh, who do you live with? 
who's, who's your neighbour? Who's, who's in the Tesco's or Lidl's or wherever you shop? Who's there in Waitrose? Who's there? They need the gospel. Mm-hmm. And they might shove it right back at you. Yeah. But that doesn't matter. No, Jesus, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. It's not going to yeah. be easy. This is going to be tough. You might get torn to pieces a little bit. A little bit? Yeah. But you... you torn to pieces a little bit. Well, you know. <laughs> you know, you might lose an arm or something yeah. or, or whatever. So... Um, God answers prayer. He answers prayer, and you're part of the answer. Isn't he a wonderful saviour? Yes. Mm. yes. But he also gives us opportunity. Exactly. Yes. Um, life is so confusing now. People are so desperate. definitely, definitely. You know, and definitely, they're seeking. There's, they, there's all the things that they count upon: their government, exactly, their people that they look up to, mm. people that they vote for, people who think they know better. Mm. And it's, they failed them. Yeah. They totally failed them. So, in a way, um, I mean, we go on about Brexit and all this hoo-ha, but to me, I'm not worried. Mm. I'm probably stupid, but I'm not worried. Because I know, in the end, God's going to sort it out. Mm. It may be that it's not going to be good and, mm. and things are going to be hard, mm. but, I mean, God's there. As long as I've got God. Yeah. Well, you live with a different perspective. That's what yeah. happens. But, and as but you pray, then, if you actually live in hope and um, expectation, people see this. Mm, definitely. And yeah. then they ask. Hope. Yeah. The thing then is, they ask. You're not afraid because no. you know who God is, and you're in, in touch with Him. You talk to Him, and He talks to you. You're not afraid. How are you not afraid? This is chaos out yeah, there. Exactly. How are you not afraid? It's because you know God. Yeah. When you look at the chaos and what's going to happen and what isn't going to happen, and I mean, th- what we're experiencing in this country, you know, is small compared to what they're experiencing in China and North yeah. Korea and Iran and those places. Korea. No, no. But so what yeah. I'm saying is, we're, we've 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 been dropped into we're behind enemy lines, yes. and we've been dropped into this situation, and we have protection all around us. Mm. We have the shield of faith. We have the breastplate of righteousness, and that just didn't sit here. It went all around. We have everything we need. We have the sword of the spirit. We have the helmet of salvation. We are untouchable unless God allows something to touch us. He's the Lord of all creation. Exactly. Yeah. The keeper of the so, Luke 18, we looked at this on our last course, so we won't read that again. Um, it's about this widow who goes around and... Um, and I know that mostly it's taught to us that we have to um, keep going, you know, and do that. But Jesus takes pains to say, um, and now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. So Jesus is contrasting the unrighteous judge with God, the Father. And what he's doing that for is so that we are encouraged to come to him. And look at how he continues. Somebody read verse 9 to verse 14, please. Luke 18, 9 to 14. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm a tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Thank you. Now think about this. Luke said I'm writing everything out in consecutive order. That means Jesus said the parable of the judge before he said about the tax collector and the Pharisee. And he says here, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves. Mm -hmm. Luke, writing to the Gentiles, writing about a God who came for everybody, not just the Jews, not just his own people at that time, came for everybody. Um, what does Luke want to tell them? That even so, um, the situation is not just God still answers prayer. Yeah, but think about it. Think about the Pharisee. Who was the Pharisee in that time? He was the one considered godly, mm -hmm. considered right, considered to be in the right place. And what does Jesus say? This man's just stood there and rehearsed all his good things. He hasn't prayed. He's just told God how good he is. What about the tax collector? What's he done? It's from the heart. Have mercy on me. I've got nothing to give you. Have mercy on me. Why do you think Luke would... Why is it Luke who wrote this down and not any of the others? Because Luke's writing to people who don't know God and have not, who are not righteous and who have nothing to present to this God. Only the, their sin. And Luke's saying that Jesus says he's the one who will be accepted because he recognized he had absolutely nothing to give. Be afraid of people inside or outside of the church who think that they know it all and who think that they're doing everything right. Be afraid of them and for them because the whole Bible tells you your righteousness is like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of Christ. You have nothing if not Christ. And Jesus is saying, you know, the, the tax collector went home justified. It is lovely. And then finally, Luke 11, verse 5 to 13. Could someone read that, those verses? And this is really, yeah, Luke, Luke 11, 5 to 13, please. He's just finished telling them how to pray. They asked him how to pray, and he's just told them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. And then verse 5 to verse 11, please. Oh, sorry, verse 13. Anyone? And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend? Go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. 
I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find it. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and he who knocks to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he, the father, give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Thank you. Now, again, this is like Luke 18 to me. I've heard this preached and taught. I've read commentaries about it that tell me that I have to keep on asking God, keep on knocking at the door, keep on coming to him, keep on knocking, keep on asking, just like this friend. And that's not what Jesus is saying. God is not like this man who's gone to sleep and locked his door. God never locks his door on his children. He is not our friend. He is our father. He is our loving father. And he tells us to come day or night, to come all the time, to pray to him for everything. You are never disturbing God when you pray, ever. He doesn't close his door. He doesn't sleep. He never... He's eager always to hear our voice. That's what the Bible tells us. God wants to hear our voice. Because when we pray, we say to him, I believe that you are and that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. Isn't, doesn't he say that in Hebrews? That's what faith is. Faith, uh, those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And that pleases God, Hebrews tells us. God is not this friend. He is not this friend. Not he is the... Op- exactly. And the word that's translated persistence can actually be translated also shamelessly or uh, boldly. Boldly? So... To the throne of grace, yes. So, because of his boldness or his shamelessness, he will get up and give him everything that he needs. We are shameless before God in Christ. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, I'm not saying persistence is wrong because it's translated in here and I believe that God is over all of these words, even over the translations. But what I'm saying is our language is not good enough to fully explain what the Bible is telling us. And so when I read this, how terrible, how sad to think that your God closes the door and locks the door on you. How sad that is. Do we want to be portrayed to the world of God who's got time frames when you can come to him? In, in both instances, uh, it's depicted that this is an impossible situation. Yes. And yet we are commended to be to continue exactly. to pray. Yes. Thank you, Mike. Yes. Can I just... The battery's gone. Do you want to stop oh. it quickly? Um, don't worry. I'll just talk loudly. It'll just go off on the, on the recording. Don't worry. It'll just... It gets slightly softer. So think about it because Jesus is taking pains to tell us something. He's telling us that we don't have a God who's like the judge and who won't 
who, who needs we need to keep going around him, and he only listens to us in case we we spoil his reputation. And he's not like a friend who locks his door and goes to sleep. Mm -hmm. Our God is not that God. Mm -hmm. Our God is the God who says, if you are, if if one of you human fathers yes. ask, is asked by his son for a fish, you don't give him a snake, mm -hmm. do you? Our God is the God who gives abundantly more than we ask, who does exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we can ask or think. That's our God. Our Father is the God who opens the door to us constantly. And what Jesus is saying is, don't give up asking and seeking and knocking, because God will answer. He will be found. He will do. This is, this is a promise. So, okay. He may not answer it in the way you think he's going to answer it at the moment you think he's going to answer it, but that doesn't mean he, he doesn't want to hear your voice. He wants to hear your voice. Can I just ask you, Please. somebody once said to me, and I really believe this is good, um, when you ask God for something earnestly, and it's important, but he doesn't obviously always answer immediately because it's his timing that's important. Mm -hmm. um, he said it's important to thank you that he's heard. Mm -hmm. and thank you, Lord, that you've heard. And mm -hmm. I know that you will answer when mm -hmm. the timing's right. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's the persist that, that's the continuous prayer mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. you could use. Yes. Um, because it's faith again. Yes. You believe yes. that you've received yes. yes. Although that one small caveat to that, I agree with yeah. it. I mean, Praise you, God, because you are the answer. You yes. do answer prayers. But one small thing there is that we can get dangerously into the word of faith movement oh, and the name it and claim it. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've said this, God will do it. Yes. That's not true. No. no. And, I mean, we know that, but what I'm saying is that we have to be really careful with that. Yeah, but I totally agree that when we're coming to God, the thing is, what we're presented with in Luke's Gospel and throughout the Bible is this constant communication with God. Because we believe he cares about us, he loves us, he hears us, he, he guides us, everything. Because we believe our life is in his hands and he wants the best for us. So now I present to him, look at me, my husband, you know, I've been a Christian 25 years. I mean, 25 years ago, in my timing, God should have saved him. I mean, it would have been so much more convenient. <laughs> but he didn't. So, so it's like, when I'm praying for Alan now, I'm not praying, oh God, please, please save him, please, 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 please save him, which is what persistence seems to uh, have been taught in yes. the past to me. I'm now praying, God, thank you that you love him more than I love him, mm -hmm. that you want him to come to repentance more than I want to come yes. to him to come to repentance. Mm -hmm. So I can be sure that you will do absolutely everything to offer him the opportunity to come to repentance. Mm -hmm. And so now, Lord, how can I add to what you're doing mm -hmm. to be what my husband needs to bring him mm -hmm. to That's you? So